Hello and welcome to a History of Christian Theology. My name's Chad Kim. With me this week will be Tom Velasco and Trevor Adams. We will be discussing Basil of Caesarea's Against Eunomius books two and three. Um, so this conversation will primarily focus on uh, how Basil of Caesarea has a, uh, has a, you know, is writing against this guy called Eunomius, who has certain views about how one talks about God and how one knows the things to say about God. And so this is a pretty dense conversation about theological language and biblical interpretation, but I think it's very helpful to understanding how Christians think and speak um, about the divine. If you have questions about this, every semester I teach C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity at St. Louis University, and uh, in book four of Mere Christianity, he has a really good introduction to um, Christian theology on the creeds, and especially like the difference between begotten versus uh, created and these sorts of things. So I recommend that to you. I also wanted to thank Julianne Seward and Wisco Matt, two recent uh, comments that were given to us on fa- uh, on uh, Apple's uh, podcast app. And they say, uh, Julianne says that this is this podcast is helping her redeem her education. She's a homeschool mom who came to faith as an adult, and she's been covering church history. And every time she has a question, she says that uh, we always have an episode to talk about it. So I wanted to say thank you to Julianne. Uh, also, Wisco Matt says, uh, thank you for the interviews and thought-provoking theologians and historians. Um, he says that he's experienced a 21st century church that is floating and disconnected from its own history. And so he's always grateful to rem- to be reminded that it's a 2,000-year conversation. So thank you, Wisco Matt. Um, we had, do have a few conversations coming up with Dr. Jonathan Tran, uh, Asian Americans in the Spirit of Racial Capitalism, as well as a listener, Hannah Nation, and her upcoming book on Chinese house churches. Um, so we're going to kind of uh, go in some slightly different directions than we have in the past, but but I think these conversations will be fruitful. Um, if you have any interest in supporting us, you could check out our Patreon. Uh, just go to patreon.com and search for A History of Christian Theology, and you will find us there. Um, if every listener gave one dollar, uh, we'd have more than enough to cover our costs. So, uh, thank you for listening, and without further ado, the conversation with Basil Caesarea and the uh, Against Eunomius books two and three. We are trying to finish up Basil of Caesarea's uh, Contra Eunomium Against Eunomius, um, and he we talked about the Father mostly, God the Father, and the first part. And this part, we're going to talk about God the Son, and then he has a short little coda on the Spirit. <laughs> um, and so, as as always, Tom likes to point out, uh, the Church Fathers know that they have to say something about the Spirit. And actually, Basil's on the Spirit, uh, what, four years ago? Who knows? We read it. Yeah. Um, and it's I like one of the main... It, but- I'm sure we did. (laughs) (laughs) It's one of the main works that we have on the spirit uh, to this point um, in in Christian history. Uh, But uh, Eunomius is, I I mean, I find Eunomius kind of interesting um, in this section. I mean, you know, he's he's like, uh, but he's trying to argue in a sense that we should talk about God the Father as the unbegotten and God the Son as the only begotten. And he, his main argument, so far as I can tell, for Eunomius, uh, and he's kind of in the line of Arius, uh, and actually that's what uh, Basil charges him with, uh, which becomes a sort of standard theological tick um, later on. Basically, if you don't like someone you find, you connect them to a heresy and Arian is a big one for the next hundred years or so. And then sometimes later we'll just sort of say, Hey, you're kind of like this person. So you're an Arian, but you know, thinks that the name only begotten says something about God's, uh, God, the father's substance or God, uh, sorry, uh, unbegotten says something about God, the father's substance, substance only begotten says something about the son's substance. Um, and he thinks that this is really important because it essentially uh, tells us something real about what's going on in the Godhead. Um, and but but for Basil, this cre- creates two distinct unity or two distinct entities: um, the the Father and then the Son, and they have separate substances. And this is, of course, what uh, the Council of Nicaea. Uh, which is written before this treatise, uh, is trying to protect against homoousios of one um, being. Um, and that's kind of that's kind of your battle as far as I see it. Do you guys uh, want to take issue with how I set us up? No, no. I, one thing I do want to kind of just join in, uh, it's kind of back to one of the 
earlier things you said about how the church always ignores the Holy Spirit. And I'm sure this has come up in a previous episode, but uh, for all of our listeners out there, I have no idea what we said three years ago. <laughs> so, so forgive me if we rehash, rehash old paths. But don't forget that the original Nicene Creed, at the end, it said, we also believe in the Holy Spirit. End. <laughs> that was how it ended. They later on amended that and added other bits, but it was in 381. Yeah. Believe in the Holy Spirit. The original one back in 325 at the Council of Nicaea, they had nothing to say. And actually, um, and this will obviously get later. I, I'm just bringing it up now because you, you pointed out that Eunomius has kind of cast in Arian terms, which is totally correct. But he does go, he veers away from Arius on the Holy Spirit in calling the Holy Spirit a created being, which mm. is very different from how Arius, uh, and even ba uh, Basil kind of points that out. He's like, he's like, you're, you're literally coming up with something nobody has ever said, which <laughs> is kind of, kind of funny. But other than that, no, uh, there were some clever arguments uh, in this paper, I thought. Um, and Trevor, it, in my mind, it went right down your alley because it was all definitional and everything he was doing was based on, which if I'm not mistaken, Chad, and this is for, again, those listening at home, we first got Basil to discuss what a year ago. I mean, it's been a, <laughs> oh, it's been a while. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I just got a, a message from somebody today actually uh, asking, you know, basically saying, so, you know, why aren't you and Trevor, regular guests on the show anymore uh he's a, <laughs> and i said well it's i didn't respond actually i probably will but uh, the real issue is we just have been busy and haven't been doing it so we're getting the work chad's given us the work and we're not doing it <laughs> at least i'm not i can't speak for trevor but uh um we got this like a year ago so but unless i'm mistaken the reason why we picked this overall was to give our analytic philosopher, our resident analytic philosopher, <laughs> Trevor, something to kind of munch on because that's right. Likes, that's right. He likes definitions, and this thing is full of them. Well, in particular, naming, which yeah. and theories and names, and yeah, this that was the passage I highlighted. Do you want to talk about that now? Yeah, let's go. Because uh, yeah, I have some thoughts as well about the underlying Greek. But go ahead. Okay, so, yeah, which I would actually like to know sort of, uh, you know, what it really says in the original language, but 135 was a passage I, I highlighted. There's, it's right at the top. It's for as soon as we hear the sound of this designation, this designation being a name, uh -huh. we immediately think, and I think this one, what, actually I should go back, which name is it? Peter, right. So it's like, so as soon as we hear Peter, right, we, and this is the quote, we immediately think of the son of Jonah, the man from Bethsaida, the brother of Andrew, the man from Bethsaida, the brother of Andrew. These are definite descriptions, as we call them. Uh, the one summoned from fishermen to the ministry of the apostle, the one who, because of the superiority of faith, was charged with the building up of the church. None of these is his substance understood as subsistence, which I take to mean something like uh, Peter could exist without any of those definite descriptions being true. Hence, the name determines for us the character of Peter. It cannot ever communicate the substance itself. This is very weird. So this is like predating like a lot of arguments that happen in contemporary analytic philosophy like so first of all there's a way in which it's affirming bertrand russell's theory of names right so bertrand russell mm. thinks that names are disguised definite descriptions and he did this because it's really easy to put into what we call uh predicate logic or uh quantifier logic right so it's, it's super easy to just put like a there exists symbol there exists an x such that x blah 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 and you could just fill it out. It's like all these things that are in the definite description. And thus, anything that fulfills the definite description, uh, 
basically gets this existentially quantified statement in logic and there and there you go and that's all a name is so whenever we say the name we can replace it with that and then we can reason as follows and there's a way in which he's saying that that's the case but then he's he's like then hitting on this later point that like kripke came along and this was like kripke's big contribution is like yeah but then you're not gonna pick out the the very thing yeah um now I'm not. I don't think he's quite saying the same thing as Kripke because Kripke was concerned that you're actually picking out that instance of that thing. So um, Peter is a human. When Eunomia says it doesn't pick out the substance, I think he means something like it's not picking out literally the fact that Peter's human at all, or something like that. I'm not. I'm not quite sure. I, I want to hear your thoughts. Whereas what Kripke was concerned with is the you could go you know if things were different um some of these definite descriptions could be uh false for example he could have not been the one who because of the superiority faith was charged with building up the church however our name peter would still pick um that very individual so that very you might say token instance of a human uh <laughs> out but it wouldn't pick out like the human part i i'm not really sure exactly what he affirms because of course he's not trying to give us a treatise on names here he's just trying to use this for the argument but this it was very interesting and it made me think that if if this is really is the word the like if this is actually supposed to be a um um definite article yeah definite article sorry i was like article what kind of article i just said definite description yet it didn't come to my brain uh if this really is supposed to be a definite article then yeah this is a way this is a kind of interesting uh philosophical historical point that sort of maybe this has been the common sense view of names and that people have been analyzing names this way for a long time way before russell and his fancy logic um (laughs) Yeah. Well, um, so I had a version of this pulled up, but it appears not to be the same version. So I was actually looking uh, to see what um, Mark Del Cagliano, the guy who made this translation, I was trying to pull up uh, who, uh, which uh, critical edition he was using. Um, but uh, so in order to be able to tell you exactly what the other li- underlying language is, but the uh, yeah, uh, so there I mean, there are a couple different things to say about like how language works uh, for them and, and sort of how naming works. So like I, there is a kind of like the Cratylus from Plato is one of the places where a lot of people go to talk about how Plato understood names and what are co- commonly uh, and, and even how whether or not language picks something out directly. Um, it seems like the Stoics had a uh, uh, a sort of more mm, fixed definition of how language picks something out. Um, and so, you know, so like it, it corresponded to a mental representation, which had a certain connection to the thing itself. Um, and so you had, you know, your, your, it's it, it sort of in the strictly, in strictly speaking philosophy of language, um, it wasn't a kind of Wittgensteinian definition that we used earlier of usage. It was like, it was more directly tied to the instance of the thing that's being described. Um, and, and so uh, there, there's kind of like that really uh, fixed kind of language. But what I take Basil to be actually arguing for is something like, uh, well, uh, it just sort of depends on how you're using it. Um, and these are kind of more fluid and it depends on which context and, you know, grouping a bunch of different things together. So he then goes on to talk about Jonah and a few other names, uh, and different ways to describe the same person. And so it's sort of like saying, well, and, and he, and he relies it on what we would call rhetorical theory of homonyms. Um, and so the, in, in rhetoric, right, you can, uh, you can talk about one thing in a couple different ways, and that doesn't mean you're changing the thing that you're talking about. Um, you just have different ways to t- describe the same thing. And in that case, there isn't only one word or one name that best picks out the individual, um, but there's just a whole bunch of things that you could pick out the same thing. 
Um, and so whether or not you're Trevor or whether or not you're Trevor Adams or whether or not you're Trevor Adams, the philosopher or, you know, the husband of uh, so-and-so, all of those are, are sort of um, – uh, uh, Mare, I can't remember her full name. Meredith. Uh, Meredith. <laughs> uh, whether or not you're the husband of Meredith, all these other things, these are interesting uh, descriptors, but all they are is descriptors, and a name just fits in the class of description, not something that picks out your individual substance. Yeah, so because that's the argument as I see it. He's going through, he's admitting that the names, in his, his words, signify, signify these distinguishing marks which is these definite descriptions basically but then says cannot ever signify the substance or the material substrate so his then argument is yeah sure all these things are encompassed by the single term paul right that's a direct quote and it's just all these definite descriptions about paul but his but yeah then his argument is um <laughs> It's I, it's better to just quote him. All these things are sorry. Moreover, if it were true that the substances of those things whose names differ are opposed, then Paul and Peter and all people in general must be a different substance. So basically, just because I can pick out different distinguishing marks that are encompassed by a name, it would be silly to then reason that the the very substances are different. And that's why I think what I was saying earlier, I think when he says it, he's not picking out Kripke's point. He's talking about like the universal and, you know, if you want to get into the metaphysics for any metaphysics people out there, it's almost like he's talking about the universal substance that they, they both hold. No name picks that out, apparently. Um, however, um, in Kripke's terminology, I guess he's trying to talk about a token instantiation of a universal or in other words, uh, a particular human. In which case, I would argue a name certainly picks out a particular human, right? Like, all those definite descriptions would be false of, or you would not be talking about Peter if those definite descriptions were true of something that wasn't human. I, at least that's my intuition. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, I don't, oh, I, I see, yeah. I don't think he necessarily disagrees with that, Trevor. I could be wrong on that, but yeah. I, I think I the way I read him on that is he's saying... The name Peter does pick out the combination of all those definite descriptions. What the name Peter doesn't do <clears throat> is say anything about the substance of the being Peter. That is what makes mm. him Peter. And this is important because, it, it, at least it seems to me, what he's arguing against Eunomius is Eunomius is arguing that uh, only begotten uh, is, uh, is the name of Jesus or of the son and is the only proper name of the son. And it's proper because it calls out the substance. And he uses this to make a whole bunch of different arguments. The first of course, is to point out, well, that's absurd because being only begotten is this, what was the phrase he used again? Uh, distinctive mark or yeah, whatever. distinguished marks this is a yeah. distinguished mark of Jesus. He says, it's not his substance. Um, and, and he, he illustrates this by saying there are other only begottens. And if mm. all only, and if only begotten was a mm. name that picked out the substance, then Jesus would actually, or the, I should say the son or the wow. second person of the Trinity would actually be of the exact same substance as all other only begottens. And I, so, I, you know, and so he's basically saying, look, a name doesn't relate to the substance. It calls out all of these different features. Um, and then he goes on to basically make the argument that only begotten fails even as a name because it was never used in scripture. Like there are other names for Jesus or for the son in scripture. And he basically says, why not use the ones God himself appointed? Yeah, I well, and I take that point and I think I take the more general point that something like just because two uh, names signify different definite descriptions. So father would signify different ones than the son or something like that. You certainly cannot then reason to, they must share a different substance. Look at Peter and Paul. That's sort of the argument like, Oh, look, here's an example where they differ, but, but you can, I just, 
quibbling with like i could certainly reason to what your substance might be depending on the definite descriptions like i would argue the brother of andrew makes me go hmm well i know andrew's a human and to be a brother means to be related so or you know the man from i mean that one just says it the man from bethsaida it's like oh so the man like so it's not as if all definite descriptions that a name sick that a name what's the exact word are encompasses uh don't give you clues or entail a substance for the individual. I mean, so if if you think that son does that in the only begotten or something, then you maybe. I, I mean, but the but I still yeah. But I take the general point that just because there's different. Uh, I think he would agree with you, Trevor. I think he would say no. He would say son does call out characteristics of the second person of the Trinity, as would mm -hmm. only be Godliness. What he's arguing isn't that those call out character don't call out characteristics, because they certainly do. He he pointed out that that the case of only begottenness is a relational characteristic, but it's still a characteristic. What he's denying is what Eunomius, at least in his in his understanding of him is doing, is is Eunomius is giving that as the essence. Like this is a full description of what he is. Yeah, it's certainly, Eunomius' argument is certainly invalid. However, I, yeah, it's yeah. just, there could be a valid version. You'd tweak it. But yeah, in this case, it's certainly invalid. Because well, this like is if he's if he's representing Eunomius correctly there. That, right. it, it actually seems to be kind of a, it'd be kind of hard for me to imagine that Eunomius actually means that, that the only qualities... That, that all essential qualities that that the Lord has are being only be, the only begotten. You know what I mean? Like that's right. that would actually be hard for me to imagine. But but insofar as Basil describes this view, that's what it seems like he's doing. Mm -hmm. So I mean, just as a sort of text critical point. Um, there are times when, uh, so Mark Del Cogliano is the scholar uh, who did this underlying text. There's another guy, I think it's Vagione is his last name, who reconstructed what he thinks to be Eunomius's original treatise. So Del Cogliano compares Vagiano to what he thinks uh, Eunomius actually says. And there are occasional points where, dark, where Del Cogliano will note uh, where we think that Basil is embellishing on what Eunomius actually said. And this actually isn't one of those cases. So, I mean, as best evidence we have, this is likely what Eunomius actually thought. Um, and so I think the, so the reason to, to sort of maybe make Eunomius's point a little differently. So why should we think that this particular name actually named the substance of the thing in this kind of peculiar way that Tom was just des describing um, there's something about the fact that it is the holy scriptures, right? So what we're going to go on to find um, is that these are the holy oracles of the spirit. Um, and so when there are names that are given, um, Eunomius thinks that they have a sort of peculiar power to name some kind of substance in a more definite way than we normally use the language. So I think like the, the way to be kind of the most generous towards Eunomius um, is to say like he thinks he's actually picking these out of scripture um, in a very definitive kind of way uh, that is binding on the Christian regardless of how we normally think about names and naming and all these other things like he's being a kind of literalist um, and saying these are the Holy Spirit's words uh, for these designations so we need to kind of use them as they're given. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, that, that would, like I, like I said, it, it's always hard for me to tell with this because I haven't read Eunomius. Uh, I, it's, there's so many things to read in the world that I, I find myself not necessarily wanting to read <laughs> a bunch of the heretics. But at the same time, I feel like if we actually read the heretics, we'd probably be better equipped to, I don't know, engage in the conversation a little bit insofar as the heretics writings even survive. Right. I mean, they're, yeah. you know, one of the big things about the heretics is their, their writings go away. But one thing that made me wonder, and, and this, it's a similar topic, but it appears way later in the paper. And so I don't know if it's relevant to these particular claims, but um, 
on page, dang it, uh, page, what page is this? 168. Uh, so it's a, it's a ways down. Um, Basil gives two quotes uh, from Eunomius that appear to be contradictory. The first one says, let no one be disturbed when he hears that the sun is something made as if a common substance were construed for them by the commonality of the names. Um, and then the second quote, if in fact these people had any concern for truth, they should confess, confess that when names are different, the substances are also different. So here he shows a contradiction, apparently, in Eunomius, in which Eunomius, in the one instance, seems to be saying that the name does indeed uh, equate the, the essence. And in the other one, he seems to say the opposite. He seems to say that you can have, you can have different names correlated to, dip to the same essences and so on and so forth. And I, I don't know what to make of that. I mean, Eunomius or Basil makes the point that Eunomius is crazy and, and an idiot and all that kind of stuff that he can't even think clearly. Um, I, I, I just wonder if there isn't more there that we just don't know about, because I have to assume if Eunomius has a wide enough audience that people are reading him and, and Bas people like Basil and Gregory of Nyssa need to engage with him, that he must have some competence to be able to speak to people. Yeah, well, and one one point about what you just used there, just for what it's worth, the underlying Greek here is always, uh, for names, is onoma, onomata, um, and then substance is usia. Um, and so it's it's exactly the terms that are contested from the Council of Nicaea um, and, and then sort of confirmed in 381 at Chalcedon, uh, or uh, excuse me, Constantinople. Um, and uh, so that is the underlying word, um, or the underlying words. The other sort of interesting thing in all of this, in Greek, the word for name and the word for noun are the same. Um, so there's no there's no sense of proper name that's distinguished from sort of a noun in general. Um, so you know, so it's it's hard to tell linguistically uh, when you're talking about the man or a man and Trevor um, because you you can, like in English mm -hmm. we'll talk about it as a proper noun uh, and and or a name um, and then we'll talk about the noun man. Uh, but in Greek, it's just onoma onomata. Um, and so it, it it seems like there's like sort of linguistic confusion. Um, like we make this really important class distinction of a, a name, a title or something. Title is the close that you title is a, is a is also a word in Greek where it's it's a little closer to something like what we mean by name. Uh, but but still, the there's enough over semantic overlap in our word name because uh, like when you introduce yourself in greek you say onoma emu uh carolus sd you know you just use that word um the name that my name is and and that's just, and it's almost you could translate that as the noun uh, of me is, is chad my name is what <laughs> yeah sorry what so <laughs> Anyway, so that's sort of it. It's a, it's an interesting part of what's going on. It's because they're trying to, you know, they're kind of playing on this, uh, uh, well, ambiguity. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. That. But that makes sense too, because then when he talks about, he talks about other names, and he says stuff like human being as name and horse and uh -huh. ox, and he's trying to get. He's trying to make a distinction between those and other things, other, I guess, names like son, slave, uh -huh. friend, uh, and trying to show that one's relational and the other's not. And I was like, oh, okay. So, yeah, we're using name in a pretty loose way here. But I guess a lot of the reasoning will go through in very similar ways. Uh, I mean, in fact, I guess Kripke probably one of the most famous applications of Kripke's theory on names is to like natural kinds like water. So it's not as if it's a crazy thing to do, but yeah, but th that, that makes sense then that maybe, yeah, maybe they've sort of got it all as one concept rather than, uh, rather than 
um, sort of two very distinct concepts that do two different logical things. Which, by the way, the passage I just brought up is on, uh, it's 142, it's like 70, page 79 of our PDF. Um, I, <clears throat> I, w- I thought this was interesting as well, because this goes to our current discussion. And this is, I think, kind of what we we're talking about in our back and forth as well, Tom. So he says, uh, it's the second paragraph that starts off with who does not know. So I might as well just read it. So who does not know that some names are expressed absolutely and in respect of themselves, signifying the things which are their reference, but other names are said relative to others, expressing only the relation to other names relative to which they're said. For example, human being, human being in quotes, horse quotes, and ox, each communicate the very thing that is named, but son, slave, and friend reveal only the connection with the associated name. So when anyone hears something begotten, he is not brought in his mind to a certain substance, but rather he understands it's connected with another. For that which is something begotten is said to be something begotten of someone else. So, yeah, so I'm reading this and I'm going, okay, this is cool. In fact, this is kind of Kripke-esque, which by the way, Kripke really just has a a million theory. Um, John Stuart Mill, that is, so... Anyway, if, if you want your historical lineage here, um, I was like, oh, okay, that's that's neat. But then when he moves to this, the, like what we just talked about, like son, slave, and friend. Okay, yeah, slave and friend, sure. But son, when he when he reasons from son does not bring to mind a certain substance, it's just, that I just am like, well, no. Now it it gets. I think you. Uh, I think this gets. Basil's results still so it doesn't like ruin Basil's argument or anything but it's just a quibble that it's like well no yeah if I hear son sure it's a relational but given what I know about how that works um I do assume son is like if I heard like someone's like you know um Fido has a son and I know Fido's a dog I'm gonna assume son of Fido's a dog like it it certainly brings to mind a substance um so it, which would get basil his result right because then it would be of the same substance with the father so but it it i thought it was weird to say that because he's saying it in a very it's a very strong thing to say like it just does not it does not so when anyone hears something begotten he has not brought in his mind to a certain substance like really what if i change it so I, I am brought to mind certain substance. I have read that. I did read that differently because I, again, I think like, I, I don't know. I mean, and this, I could just be wrong on this. I, I don't know that Basil is saying that a name doesn't bring out because part of this is definitional about substance, right? So when I think of substance, I think of characteristics and I think particularly essential characteristics. So, characteristics that a thing has to have to be what it is and i can think of sonship at not not talking about the father and the son but talking about just like the notion of sonship as being a relational uh a relational characteristic i have it only insofar as i have this certain relation to somebody else and i could see somebody saying in some sense that that doesn't qualify as a kind of essential characteristic. But I don't know even that Basil is saying that that these relational characteristics are never essential. I don't know that Basil would say that, that, that Jesus being the son or being only begotten isn't essential to him. I think he would. I think he would say that. But I think what he instead is saying is that doesn't encompass the entirety of his essence. That's not the whole of it. And it's not uniquely his because other things are also only begotten. And so if we make that all that he is, then he shares purely the same essence as any other thing that is an only begotten. And he's saying that that's wrong. And that's kind of how I've taken it. And he then goes on, like like you pointed out just a second ago, Trevor, one of his key points that he's going against Eunomius with is the begottenness actually... Uh, goes to his point, to his own view, because on his view, the begottenness implies a sharing of substance. That is, 
that whatever the father is, the son is going to be that, um, that, that just like what you just said, like a father, um, you know, like Rufus, the dog or whatever yeah, yeah, yeah. son is going to be that. And so he's saying, look, I do think Jesus is begotten. I do think he has these characteristics, but that begottenness set means something. And what it means is that the, the, the substance of the father is in the substance of the son. Whereas you, he would say to Eunomius, who are saying that this is the sum total of your essence is that you're begotten as opposed to unbegotten like, like the father. That means you have totally different essences and it cannot be communicated. And in fact, he's saying logically, the father can't even beget. You just exist as a only begotten with no father because the father can't beget. Yeah. That's so this is okay. This this was like our discussion last time when. Uh, okay. Yeah. I. All right. You know what this is, people. This is. It's been this many weeks since we recorded the first one, so I've already forgotten about book one. I remember this now. This weird talk about a name like being like basically like a hardcore Platonist um reasoning here and okay so now now i'm realizing the issue when he's so in this passage is quoted when anyone hears something begotten he has not brought in his mind to a certain substance my objection is of course i am the whatever the thing you're begotten of substance but what he means is like literally that something begottenness is a substance, uh, yeah, which would be like absolutely. So, see, my mind is so not Platonist. I'm so like Aristotelian that I just am like, what? That's crazy. Well, in this uh, definition, <laughs> this this definition, this is why I've struggled thinking this is what Eunomius actually meant because actually holding that view seems bonkers to me. Right, because then, like, yeah, certainly my my dog and. Uh, the, the son of God have the same, yeah. you know, I, I have the same proud, of course. Yeah. I could Beatles. I mean, <laughs> be me being begotten of, it's like we all, there's lots of things that would like participate in that form, so to speak. So yeah, that's, that's really well, weird. So one thing that I wanted to bring up that's related to this, but takes it to another sort of level. Um, I guess, uh, if it's on page one fifty three, um, but, it's um it's sort of like okay how far do these analogies go um so how far can we use the notion of fatherhood and sonhood to describe um uh, what basil will call actual theology uh, that is god in say uh god and god's self um the imminent trinity versus god in for us uh the in the economy of salvation um so what can we say about god and god's self and uh, he says on the top of 153, no one should quibble over our account here if none of the examples harmonize completely with the matter at hand. Um, so that is the father and the son distinction can help us think about sharing a substance and begetting, but it's not perfect. Um, that is, it doesn't explain to us everything about what's going on in the divine trinity. Um, so for, and then he says for trivial and insignificant things cannot be adapted exactly to divine and eternal realities. Um, so there's sort of a sense in which we can have this conversation, um, and we can learn things by these analogies, but they will always be insufficient. Um, and, and, but then it's sort of funny. <laughs> they are used only insofar as they refute the false pretenses. <laughs> so they're so, they're sort of as good as they can be to refute, um, but what's interesting is this actually uh, it, it 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 comes close to a kind of Dionysian uh, 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 apophatism. Um, that is, they're useful to say what it is not, but they're actually not perfect about telling you what is. Um, and you're you're sort of already seeing the seeds of uh, and the grounds for so pseudo Dionysius or Dionysius we haven't read yet uh, the Areopagite. Um, but he has this, like, he's kind of the original apophatic theologian who says that you can't speak about what God is. You can only speak about what God is not is sort of what he's known for. Now Let's it's more complicated him. than that. <laughs> yeah, well, we should. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm down. 
but you can see how Basil gets there, uh, or excuse me, you can see how Dionysius gets there. So Dionysius knows pretty well uh, the Cappadocians and Origen and sort of takes them another step further. Um, but this, so, but what the real point, that the, the point that I wanted to, to really kind of uh, drill down on that we, we haven't really talked about at all is the question of what does it mean to speak of God? um in in an, an analogical sense so like i'm i'm realizing very quickly uh the more that i study theology and it's kind of come to a head in the last year um is the greatest question is how do how do we make human language predicate something of divinity um and and so to what extent is is that uh connected to our natural realities um, and to what extent is it totally obliterated by de- de- revelatory categories? Um, so the the like and and this is going to get into a lot of modern theology, uh, but but most Bartians uh, want to say that we can't analogize uh, from what we know on Earth to the, the divine, um, and so this is sort of cutting the legs off of natural theology. Um, and so the the 20th century German Bartian kind of neo orthodox school. They want to undo any any kind of connection between language uh, that we have, which is based upon our natural realities and what we can speak about God and say that the only things that we can say about God come from revelation. Um, And it's this sort of fascinating move. Um, And it's but it is the question because you want to say like, well, yeah, like and what what but what can we say? Because if we could say nothing, then it doesn't seem like our language is meaningful at all in any grand sense. Um, And so you you totally understand why Aquinas and then those people who take the uh, uh, Thomistic position want to say, well, we have to be able to say something. An analogy matters to some degree. Um, uh, Otherwise, like we're just we're all just playing, you know. I'm not even sure we're communicating. Uh, we're certainly not communicating with God um, or communicating about God. And if that's the fundamental reality, um, then what is the point of our talking? Um, and that and that seems to be like Basil is saying, like, uh, you know, he's 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 not saying. And then, but here's here's the kind of so what is Eunomius saying? I think Eunomius is talking about univocity of speech, which is apparently done Scotus's position, uh, which I know almost nothing about. Uh, but he thinks that we can speak univocally about God um, so that there is no ambiguity in some sense. Um, like it's just direct application. And Aquinas wants there to be an analogy. Well, so, so as A is to B, so C is to D. It's not direct speech. Um, and then the Bartians, the other direction, let's just obliterate it all. And I think Eunomius is actually arguing for something more like uh, univocal speech with respect to God. Mm, so okay yeah in which case oh wait you said you know oh you know me yes right 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 so then then basil is sort of anticipating aquinas um yes that's what i think's going on yeah and i think Mm. the sort of broader tradition really wants this kind of analogy to work so we can dance carefully around certain things uh, but we're never speaking univocally about god um that what i think scotus wants to do um, and then, yeah, then, then, you know, whatever you want to make of the Bartian move is a whole other thing. Uh, but it's like it, every time it sort of baffles me that that's what I think the Bartian move is. And, I, and, and it's, it's a kind of, and, and if David Bentley Hart is correct, it's just an extension of what Calvin wants to say. Your language is meaningless. Um, and, and so, uh, you know, why are we talking about good and evil if those terms are totally arbitrary? Um, but yeah (laughs) yeah i've noticed that people sorry i'll like i'll just say this real quick i've noticed that people um if they're like yeah if they if they really know their theology or whatever they'll be super strict about this but in like real life uh amongst christians i've actually interacted with i've noticed that it's a sliding scale somewhere between um bartianism and um Aquinas's view depending on whether it's an issue they agree with or disagree with right so if it's something you really don't want God to have a property you really don't like about God you just go all the way down to Bartian or people will start to affirm things that sound Bartian whereas if it's like 
or maybe they'll, they'll at least slide the scale that way. And then if it's something they really want, a property they really want God to have, they'll they'll slide a lot closer to clients. But I've never, <laughs> I definitely don't meet Christians. I'm sure there are some, and I bet you maybe you've met them. I just at least can't remember people who think, well, you know, now I say that, there's probably some people. But the univocal view, that does seem like the craziest in some way. It seemed like a lot of people I met, if they if they've reflected on the Bible at all, at least a little bit, they would say things like, well, of course, you know, these are human thoughts and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And they would, you know, his ways are not our way. And they would say stuff like that to say, like, you know, it's just an analogy. Christ is like a door. Christ is, you know, and I, I'd heard that repeated so much when I was a kid, um, So, and which is more Aquinas in its Thomistic, you might say. But yeah, I think. I mean, that you mentioning this idea that Eunomius is univocal. It, I mean, I could be totally off base here, but what it makes me think of is it makes me think of what um, Pascal derides as the god of the philosophers. Um, it's the whole, you know, late Renaissance, early Enlightenment era, uh, starting with Descartes, going to Spinoza, especially Spinoza, where you have this idea that you can give these rigid definitions and by giving these rigid definitions, you can deduce reality. You can, you can eliminate ambiguity and you can eliminate uh, a vagueness and come to a concrete understanding of what is really real. In a sense, it's like, like, like we want certainty and we want, um, want absolute certainty and we want uh, no like emotive component or anything like that. And that seems to me what a lot of the Enlightenment philosophers are doing. And in some sense, I think a lot of analytic philosophy has carried that over. It's just that it seems to me that analytic philosophy kind of, I mean, I'm probably oversimplifying here, and you can definitely correct me on this, Trevor, if you want to. <laughs> um, but I feel like a lot of it is like, okay, we acknowledge that that univocal thing is not really real and true. Spinoza was off. Hegel was off. You can't deduce reality in this precise, like, way, like, propositionally. But there are things we can, and we're just going to focus on those things, and we're going to barely kind of traverse the other stuff and let science and other disciplines kind of deal, be the experts on that front. I could be wrong on that, but that was my impression when I was studying philosophy, uh, was that analytic philosophy was like, they were picking up where the Enlightenment left off in that they were saying, we too want to focus on what we can know for certain for the most part and what we can reduce to kind of the like the least ambiguous kind of modes of discourse. But we acknowledge this other stuff is out there. That was kind of how I how I interpreted it. Um, and whereas, you know, one of the things I do think is interesting, I mean, whether it's Thomistic or whatever, it does strike me that this is kind of core to the Judeo-Christian that I should, let me put it this way, that ana, uh, analogical thinking, thinking by analogy is core to the Judeo-Christian project, right? I mean, we're created in God's image, according to Genesis. And that the implication is we can learn about God because in some salient ways, we're like him uh, because we've been made in his image. And then of course, in John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. I think the implication amongst other things is this, that the language and the ability to communicate and reason is our unique gift as humanity. And that's kind of the unique way in which we're like God. And he chooses to reveal himself to us through the word. And, and I'm not, I don't mean it in the Bartian sense of like only the scripture. Yeah. Right? I'm not necessarily committed entirely. Although I like a lot of what Bart is doing there. And I do think the principal way we learn about him is through revelation in scripture. Uh, I do think it's more, I think it's more broadly the word, like the fact that we can talk the way that we can and think the way that we can. And, and we do that enables us to think about God uh, in spite of the fact that in lots of ways we can't, I, I do think acknowledge that we can't know him fully because uh, how does the finite know the infinite? You know what I mean? Like, I think it's only through this more analogical way. Well, and 
yeah, I think that's well said. Uh, it's, I mean, yeah, and and just to reiterate for listeners, um, you know, one way this really co- drives hard into this conversation is Basil will say he essentially says in the passage just before I've just quoted, he says, "Well, what are you going to do when it says God is a rock, or um, I save them with my right hand?" And he says, "We don't just assume by that that God has a body." Um, or that God is a rock. Um, and that, so that's where the idea of analogy comes in, um, is we, we have to say, okay, well, what are we going to do about those passages in the Old Testament where, or in the New Testament or whatever, where God is anthropomorphized? Um, we, don't, we don't, strictly speaking, believe that God has an arm. What I think is fascinating, though, is there is actually a movement in biblical studies to do this. Um, and it's sort of like biblical studies people are uh, kind of in that sort of univocal mode, and they want to just continue on in this sort of rationalistic project and say, well, if it speaks about God having a body, um, then God must have a body. Um, and they don't want to analogize that speech. <laughs> and I don't analogize, excuse me, that speech. And I like, I just heard, I mean, I don't know if anybody's still listening at this point, but I mean, there's a book on script, Brittany Wilson. I mean, she is a New Testament scholar who says, well, we shouldn't talk about God. We should talk about God's body um, and we should mean it in some sort of univocal way. Like God has a body and it's our body and there's no analogy. And I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> yeah, that that seems crazy to me, honestly. I mean, I don't know. And that's I- a move. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, that, that actually, this inability to think analogically, I mean, you're thinking in terms of academics, which I didn't, I, when I said, I don't know a second ago, I was thinking of something very different because it would seem odd to me that academically people would go that route at the like, uh, street level, lots of people go that route. Right. I mean, you, you know, this is a, these are conversations I have ad nauseum with people where you, you try to, I don't know. I mean, especially just given evangelicalism and its obsession with eschatology, that's like, that would be an example where trying to sit down with people and to say, mm-hmm. look, some of this language may not be literal. It's just a will not compute. Like, these are things that must be done exactly literally. And then, of course, just as a side note, I mean, they then proceed to not be literal, right? I mean, it's kind of a, an inconsistency because they'll turn around and they'll say something like this. Well, the, the beast of Revelation is clearly the Antichrist. And, and I go, OK, well, what is that? And they go, well, it's a man. I'm like, well, then you're being non-literal because it's a beast in Revelation. <laughs> and they're like, well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, so they'll, they'll cry out for this extreme literalness. But uh, the beast is a man. I'm like, no, that's that's not. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. My point is, is that kind of at the street level, people are they try very hard to be literal to 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 a fault. And it makes it impossible to to read the language or to make sense of the language. You have to go in saying everything is not everything. I need to be careful here. I mean. Uh, there, the analogy is, is essential to understanding yeah. the scripture. I, I have to be careful. I, I believe that there are many things in the Bible that are meant to just be stated as historical fact. But, but my point is, is that, is that um, nonetheless, by, the Bible uses or is replete with this analogical language and requires us to understand analogical language. By the way, it's not just the Bible. It's human talk requires it. We are... Uh, again, constantly we're using metaphor and comparison and and things in our discussions and in our processing of life. So it, it's just what it means to be human. Yeah, I mean, insofar as you're talking about the Bible generally, is probably a bit different from speaking about specific passages in which you're attributing properties of God, right? And uh, yeah, you're right. I There is a tendency for sure to try to be, at least especially in church, I grew up in the same church you go to now, huge tendency to, to try to be as literal as possible whenever you could. But I did find that a lot of people were 
I don't know. I, I'd be curious to know, because I'm sure you've interacted with a lot more people. Um, my memory is that lots of people were very comfortable when it came to actually attributing things of God to do it in a very analogical way. That's when all of a sudden, because of, there's sort of some sort of like deference to the God's glory that, oh, of course we can't say this literally of God. Then all of a sudden it's super easy to not be literal. Yeah, you're, you're definitely right that people are more comfortable using analogy to speak of God overall um, at kind of, you know, in my experience with, with churchgoers, for sure. You're going to find that much more free. I mean, when, when it talks about the arm of the Lord or the horn of the Lord or something like that. However, you'd be surprised how many people still, uh, I mean, it's a smaller subset, but there's a lot um, of people who will still try to, I mean, I've heard it come up to me and say, no, God has a body. Look, it says the arm of the Lord. He has an arm. And I'm like, I, no, no, no. You know, so that's a thing I definitely hear. But you're you know, right, it's way less common than literalness <laughs> in other areas. You know, you know where I do hear this actually a lot is God's pronouns. <laughs> Gotta God be a he. Gotta be a he. God's a he. God's a him. Right? Like, well, that's when I do start to hear people uh, lean on uh, something like, well, you know, the male spirit is really most like the spirit so i mean maybe it's still analogical you know in the sense because they'll be like of course god's not god doesn't have a body you know maybe if if they've if they've thought it that through but the i have heard this crop up in that discussion so the way that liberals get away with doing it so we are just describing evangelical congregations so just Mm -hmm. um i got my master's degree with the liberals at princeton seminary um and the way that liberals get away with it is they say what did the Hebrew author who wrote the text think that they meant? And then they will always say it's literal. Um, and so they 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 make the exact same move, but they they ask you to sort of don't read this as if it applies to you. Read this from their point of view, and they are and they won't call it um, univocal speech or non literal speech. But that's Chronolo- how they get away with it. chronological snobbery. Mm-hmm. I get so sick of hearing moderns act like ancients didn't understand what metaphor was. Like it drives me nuts when people sit there and say, oh no, the Greeks, they all just believe that the stories they told about Zeus and Europa, never mind the fact that, that there are actually super interesting metaphors there. They totally just accepted it as completely literal because people were incapable <laughs> yeah. of thinking of metaphor until the 20th century. I mean, it drives me nuts. Like, I mean, I don't know. I I'm, I can't say that you didn't have ancients who didn't. I'm sure at times you had plenty who thought in literal terms. And probably, maybe, the masses did. Maybe the uneducated masses who never read anything, when they went to a temple and heard something about Zeus, maybe they really did think those stories were real. But guaranteed, like, I mean, when you, when the, the educated people, they were thinking analogically all the time. Homer is not literal. That guy is is full of metaphor and analogy and everything represents something. I mean, to a very like, I mean, I, I mean, I just think about it just as an example. Think of the Odyssey. The Odyssey opens with Odysseus on the island of Calypso. What is Calypso? Calypso is a goddess. But and what does she want? She's in love with Odysseus. So, so he's her sex slave and she's keeping him there and he can't escape. But at the end of the day, what does Calypso mean? It means hidden. It means hidden. And what is Odysseus? He's hidden. He can't be found. And that sets the the whole uh, energy of the opening of the book when his son goes out to search for his lost father, right? I mean, it's like it's full of all sorts of metaphors that were never meant to be interpreted as real or literal. And I don't know, when I read, like, there are times when I read passages in the Old Testament and I think, oh, that does sound literal. Like, it does sound like they're being literal. But honestly, most of the time, I don't think it does, especially when you're talking about psalm, like the, the language of the Psalms and talking about the arm of the Lord and things of that. I'm not picturing, I'm not, when I read that, I don't think they're picturing an arm, you know? Yeah, I, I or God, that's... Or- or what God being like a mother hen gathering us under 
or wings. Yeah, I mean. <laughs> yeah, what would that mean if that was univocal? <laughs> yeah, there's a like. What are uh, we saying? Yeah, like hens. By the way, are fierce for those who think they're not. Uh, they can be. They... I have seven of them now. Oh, <laughs> so you know. <laughs> uh, yeah, but like, yeah, it's it's uh, it and it's it's fun to bring it up when it's obvious, and then when whenever it's your particular um, theological um, important thing to you, then you'll you'll defend. The, a more univocal view or something. I could, of course, this comes up in transubstantiation arguments as well. This is like the whole fight, right? So maybe we'll talk about that someday as well. But Thanks for listening to History of Christian Theology. My name's Chad Kim. Um, we'll be back next time uh, with another author interview. Probably Dr. Tran will be next up on the docket. Thanks for listening. See you next time.